All right. Welcome to Diabetics Diabetes Late Night Podcast. Thank you for joining us and spending time with me. I'm your host, Mr. Divabetic, and it's great to be playing music by Prince tonight and the new power generation. You know, the last song, the song we just heard, Love to the Nines, was from the Love Symbol album, and we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the album's release, courtesy of Sony Music. In 1992, Prince changed his name to the infamous Love Symbol. He wrote, it's all about thinking in new ways, turning uh, into a new frequency. It was driven from a combination of symbols for both male and female. He adopted the symbol as a tool for his contract negotiation with his label at the time, Warner Brothers. And according to Rolling Stone, Warner Brothers wanted Prince to slow down the pace of releasing new music for fear he was flooding the market. Unwilling to acquiesce uh, the request, Prince actually increased his pace. (laughs) And the love symbol meant so much to him that he continued to use it long after he changed his stage name back to Prince when his contract finally ended. Well, how would you like to use a symbol to describe what's going on with your diabetes or maybe just to claim you're living with diabetes? You know, um, would it be easier to use a symbol? How do you talk to yourself and others when you're discussing your condition? And what role does language play in your mental, spiritual, and physical well-being. Well, that's what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about the power of language to elevate or destroy someone's perception of themselves or their diabetes health. For decades, much of the language around diabetes and diet culture have been laid in with fear, judgment, and blame without considering individual needs, beliefs, and choices. The good news is that more and more healthcare professionals and advocates are speaking out and encouraging a more collaborative message system that enhances and empowers health outcomes. Joining me tonight are poet Lorraine Brooks and our good friend Susan Wiener. And if you want to join the conversation at some point or just tell us how much you love Prince, you can at 347-215-8551. Like I mentioned earlier, Prince and the New Power Generation's Love Symbol album is what we're featuring all night as part of our year at Divabetic where we celebrate the dudes in music, and it's all courtesy of Sony Music. Um, Don't forget to sign up for our free baking program on Zoom Thursday, April 28th, with the Diabetic Pastry Shop, Divabetic Image and Style Advisor, Catherine Schuler, and myself. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll be learning new ways to incorporate alternative flowers and some of our favorite sugar substitutes into dessert recipes. We'll get a style presentation from Catherine Schuler. And, yes, I've got more prizes to give away during that random drawing. You could sign up at Eventbrite for that free virtual program on Eventbrite with Divabetic. Look forward to it. Okay, you know, one of my favorite songs from this album was when Prince got a little reggae-infused. So we're going to listen to Bright Blue Light right now. When we come back, you'll meet my first guest. So glad to have her back on the show, Poet Lorraine Brooks. Here's Blue Light. Oh, well, here we are again. For something to get us in the mood I tell each and every one of my friends That the love we make is really pretty rude But they don't believe me Cause it's written all over my face Like avian and the hate to see You and me got different 
taste You like it in the dark But I like a blue light Can you turn on a blue I think that's such a departure from what the usual sound I hear in Prince. I, I just really fell in love with Blue Light off of this album, Love Symbol. You know, um, if you're not familiar with our podcast, we have been podcasting for 12 years straight, which makes us one of the longest-running Diabetes podcasts out there, which we're very proud of. And for the last seven, going into eight years now, we do our annual mystery podcast where we all – uh, everyone in our regular team and some fellow advocates become actors for the night in an hour-long mystery podcast that I write and um, produce like Cecil B. Demented. And so I haven't talked to this guest since she narrated our last podcast called A Christmas Carol, which is available for free on iTunes and Apple Music. So please welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have her back. And she's going to be on a live stage soon in, in um, Virginia. Please welcome to the show, poet Lorraine Brooks. Hi, Lorraine. Hi, Max. How are you? I'm good. So you are going to be acting in the Vagina Monologues coming up soon, huh? Tell us about that. Yeah. We open this Friday night. It's uh, Laurel, Maryland. It's not Virginia. Um, it's at the Laurel Mill Playhouse in Laurel, Maryland. And uh, we have a great cast of nine women. And um, <clears throat> it's being directed by uh, another um, vagina warrior, a woman, female. And so um, it's going to be fun. And it's, um, it, it's a play with – it's fun, but it's also a play with a message. And I think that uh, uh, – you're talking about language. I think one of the things about the play is understanding uh, that language does mean something and it does have an effect on the way people see themselves and their experiences. So I recommend it to everybody. I, I, I agree. That's why I brought it up, actually, because, like, the word vagina is not used in language. And it, it does seem that, that it has this kind of um, – it's been vilified, you know, that we can't say it out loud. And, I, and I've seen that show off-Broadway with Eve Eisler, who wrote it. And I just mm-hmm. – you know, there's some – do you find that it's been empowering to be part of that process? Because I do think it does parallel what we're talking about tonight. Well, I think, yes, I I do find it empowering, and I find it um, uh, educational. You know, a lot of people um, find some of the words uncomfortable, and we have some actresses even in the play who some of the words, but they've gotten better at it as we've been rehearsing and as we go over it. And even they have said, you know, these are just words. That's really all they are is words, and it's the importance of the power that we attach to them that makes all the difference is how we interpret them but they're just words and vagina is just a body part it's not even you know it's not a bad word no but like in, like getting on to our topic tonight diabetes is the same kind of thing that word or the word diabetic specifically have power attached to them and also uh, a stigma and a lot of people uh, like you said, about the, are uncomfortable, especially when they're in the doctor's room, about either talking about it or even maybe their healthcare professional is uncomfortable kind of dealing with some of the other aspects, uh, sp- specifically around the emotional aspect of living with diabetes. 
So tell us a little bit about how you think language has played a role in your health outcomes living with diabetes. Well, in the beginning, um, I, I was reluctant to say that I was diabetic. I wasn't really sure I wanted anybody to particularly know. I don't think I was embarrassed or ashamed. I just kind of felt like it was something that, you know, really didn't concern anybody. But then um, I, I realized that there was a different way of saying it. I can say I'm somebody with diabetes as opposed to being diabetic. And that, just that little change, that I'm somebody with diabetes, just like I'm somebody with, you know, um, brown eyes or whatever. Um, it's just a part of myself. It's just another thing about me. And it doesn't really have to have any judgment attached to it whatsoever, but from me or anybody else. And so I think that was helpful to me to think of myself as somebody with something as opposed to somebody, you know, that, that was something, you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm explaining No, I do. And I'm, and another term that, another term that's changed is this idea of control, right? Like, um, you know, Lorraine, you could control your blood sugars versus saying, you know, Lorraine, you could manage your blood sugars. Does the word control trigger anything in you? I'm just curious because that's another word that the language has definitely changed around. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't know that I can control anything. Um, and, yes, that was a, a liberating word for me, the managing as opposed to controlling, because that's exactly, to me, what it is I manage on a day-to-day basis but sometimes even though I'm managing and I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to do sometimes it's still out of control quote unquote so I think that managing is really what you're doing if you live with this disease you have to manage it it doesn't always mean you're going to be perfect and it doesn't always mean the number is going to be what what it's what it, I can't even say what it should be, but it doesn't mean that the number is going to be satisfactory to somebody else. It just means that you are dealing with it and that you're dealing with it to the best of your ability. So, yeah, I like manage way better than control. And how do you think uh, language, again, with your healthcare professional around fear uh, has affected you and your outcomes? Because a lot of people use messaging and not just, and I don't want to just put this on healthcare professionals. We could put this on friends, family members, spouses, um, and, and coworkers. But a lot of people always say diabetes causes amputation. Diabetes causes blindness. Diabetes causes uh, kidney failure. Instead of using what our friend doc, uh, Dr. Bev Adler says, but she actually took that from Dr. Polanski, who said it years before. They've adapted this message, which we use now at Divabetic a lot, where they say well-managed diabetes is a leading cause of nothing. So it's really, uh, going back to what I just stated prior to that, it's really mismanaged diabetes can cause amputation. Mismanaged diabetes could cause blindness. Mismanaged diabetes could cause kidney failure. Do you feel like those fear tactics uh, are motivational, encouraging, or did they turn you off when you're told that at a doctor? Um, they personally turned me off. Um, yes, I think that mismanaged or poorly managed anything, you know, can lead to unwanted outcomes. 
And, of course, diabetes is one of those things. Um, so, yeah, and there are a lot of healthcare professionals, and I guess I'm singling them out because I, I feel like they probably ought to know better, but there are a lot of healthcare professionals who are still behind that move, you know, behind meaning they haven't caught up with that movement yet because they're still using words that sound kind of pejorative, you know. Um, as a matter of fact, the poem that I wrote tonight is about a true encounter that I had recently with a podiatrist who um, was, to me, quite offensive in her lack of knowledge and her lack of um, using the appropriate language and making judgments about me and, and, you know, the way that I handle myself. So yeah. I think that's a perfect prelude to kick off having Lorraine Brooks perform <laughs> judging and grudging. That was a great intro, Lorraine. So it, big segue, huh? So the name of my poem <laughs> is Judging and Grudging. My new podiatrist who has never met me feels it is her duty to address my diabetes, which does not offend me, although her comments make it clear that she just doesn't get me. She asks for my latest A1C and the date, and I dutifully tell her it was just last month that I stay on top of my blood work every 90 days, and it's still been hovering around eight she doesn't even look up from my feet. She shakes her head and makes that disapproving face while telling me I could do better and I should lose weight. But in that moment, I refused to feel defeat. I politely said, with all due respect, that statement is offensive. You have not done a history or a proper exam. You are making assumptions about who and what I am, and your assessment of me is anything but comprehensive. First of all, I am type 1, not 2. I've had this disease over 40 years, and yes, it is a struggle. But I have no complications, and that includes my feet. And now I feel I must educate you. Everything in my life is not a result of what you see. Every medical concern needs to be addressed objectively. Whatever you would tell someone of average size is exactly what you should be telling me. Pinch nerve? Tell me what to take, what to avoid. Help me cope. Gastric reflux? Give me some practical advice I can use. Don't assume everything is about my size. Meet me where I am. Offer me hope. Acknowledge that weight is just another statistic, that health and well-being are what you prescribe. Tell me I'm okay without reservation and examine yourselves to be more realistic. Our audience is giving you a standing ovation, uh, Lorraine. <laughs> I, I really, you sent this to me earlier, and I, I really loved it because I do feel, you know, uh, I hear what you're saying, and I think a lot of people think that in their head, and it has to have power to say it out loud. 
So I guess I want to know, like, when that was all happening, did you, you did talk to her, like you mentioned in this poem, you really did talk to her podiatrist and kind of give her uh, a little bit of a shakedown, right? Oh, I really did. Yeah. And, you know, I'll tell you what, Max, five years ago, I probably wouldn't have done that. Uh, Or maybe 10 years ago, I wouldn't have done that. I would have walked out of there with my, you know, tail between my legs and I would have been pissed off and everything. But, but yeah, I, I did. I said to her, um, she didn't even look at me. She was actually looking at my feet and she didn't even look up. And she asked me what my A1C was. And I said, uh, at that point, it was like 7.9 or something. And um, without looking up, she said, oh, you can do better. And, you know, you probably need to lose some weight. And I, I thought to myself, you don't even know me. You just met me. So, A, how do you know that I could do better? And how do you know that this isn't better? How do you know my A1C wasn't 13 two months ago? You know, you don't know that. And you, you didn't do an examination. You didn't take my history. And so I said that to her. I said, well, um, I said I have to say that, and I tried to say it as professionally as I could. I said I have to say that um, I think it's unfair what you're saying to me because you haven't taken a history and you haven't done an exam. And, and you don't have anything to go on. You don't know that this 7.9, whether it's, going up or going down, you don't know which direction it's going in, and you don't have any, you know, any context. You have nothing to, 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 to compare it to. And she did listen, but I'm not sure that it really got through. Um, needless to say, I have not been back to that particular podiatrist, and I'm going to find another podiatrist. But this was at the same time that she was telling me that my feet are fine and my circulation is good and, you know, my skin is intact and all of that. So all of the things that she was telling me were good things, but she still had felt like she had to get this little, I'm going to call it a dig, you know, in that um, I, that I could be doing something better as if what I was doing was not enough. So, yeah, I, I was a little insulted. I think that's it. I think it's the – there's got to be – it's got to be exhausting. I mean, there's diabetes stigma, and then there's weight stigma, weight bias, and diet culture. And, unfortunately, a lot of those things go together. And, I, you know, I just feel like you have been dealing with it for a long time because, you know, we you had that groundbreaking poem that you shared on Divabetic about um, going to the beach and why you might not choose to go to the beach based on – how, you know, how the weight bias in the world and how people mm-hmm. look at you and right. how you also feel about yourself. And, you know, it's interesting uh, before, before we bring Susan in, you know, there, there's so much, um, we're seeing more and more celebrity women specifically, and they keep saying that diet culture really is something that's very gender specific. It does happen to men, but it's much more pre- pro, uh, prevalent with women and that the average woman spends about 17 years of her life <laughs> in her lifetime on a diet. So I'm just curious, you know, because I was having uh, dinner with some friends the other night, and we were specifically talking about Lizzo. (laughs) And they were incensed that uh, Lizzo on her Instagram is showing herself in her bikinis or swimsuits. And then if you see her on any performance, she's um, twerking and things like that. And personally, and publicly, I, I think she's amazing. I personally think anyone who feels that great about themselves and loves their body that much is taking care of their health. Is someone like what you did in the podiatrist's office. She is going to stand up and say, wait a minute, 
I don't think I should be addressed that way. I think you need to back up and learn more about my history my, and what I'm going through before you make any judgment based on what you see. And I, I'm just wondering, like, how do you relate to someone like Valerie Bertinelli, uh, Lizzo, like these women who are really speaking out a little bit about the stigmas that they've dealt with their whole lives around shape and size. So, yeah. Um, so I, I have um, what I want to say about Lizzo, and I think it's great that, as you say, that she has confidence in herself and doesn't particularly care what other people think. And I think that's fine. I personally am not a fan of twerking. I don't care who's doing it. Um, I don't want to particularly see twerking. So I don't hold that against her for twerking. But if she wants to to twerk, you know, I'm okay with that if that's her decision. Um, But, again, I think I'm more offended by the twerking than I am (laughs) what she looks like. Um, But I think it's true that, I I know myself, as you pointed out, and you've known me for a long time now. This is something, this is probably the biggest struggle of my life, honest to goodness. This is a bigger struggle than diabetes. It's a bigger struggle than getting old. It's a bigger struggle than anything else that I do. It's this struggle. And I'm going to be on stage this weekend, as you pointed out. And I'm still going through that thing about, oh, my God, I'm going to be on stage and everybody's going to be looking at me and what are they going to think? And, you know, um, you know, they're not going to be listening to what I'm saying. They're just going to be looking at me. And, you know, when, is, when does it stop? I mean, I'm 70 years old now. When does it stop? And I don't, I, don't know, I don't know that it can stop because it's so ingrained in who we are and what we've been taught and how we've been um, – uh, uh, you know, acculturated to think of ourselves as this thing that we look like as opposed to this person that we are. So true. And I've been reading a lot about how weight stigma, not the actual weight, is what's so toxic in everything. You know what I mean? So this is a great jumping mm-hmm. off point to bring up our next guest after this musical moment. But when we come back, I'm going to cough because I'm so excited. No, I'm going to cough because something in my throat. But our good friend Susan Wiener, who's an award-winning <laughs> nutritionist, health, and diabetes expert, and the owner of Susan Wiener Nutrition is going to join the conversation and uh, talk to us about why new terms like healthcare collaborator instead of healthcare provider are helping empower people with diabetes. But first, it's time for more music. Uh, the Love Symbol album was recorded and ready for release when Prince was re- traveling with Diamonds and Pearls tour when he was uh, debuting the songs from the album. So we're going to listen to another great song that I love. This is a ballad. It's called Damn You.
I chose that song because I was like, damn you, society, for uh, putting these weight bias, weight stigmas, stigmas around diabetes in, in front of our faces every day, all day long. And I know uh, we had a big conversation with Lorraine, so I'm, I'm ready to welcome Susan Wiener to the show and ask her that, uh, if she wants to unpack some of the things she heard Lorraine and I talking about in the conversation. Hi, Susan. Hi, Max. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, I'd like to follow up on some of what I heard from my good friend Lorraine. And I'm always so impressed every time she does one of her poems. I listen so intently, and I just want to share it with the world. So Lorraine, thank you for that. There's a few things that came to mind that I'd like to discuss, Max, if it's okay with you. The first thing about Lorraine's um, visit with the podiatrist for the first time that came to my mind is that there continues to be, and this floats right into language, a power differential that no matter how much somebody is experienced or how bright someone is or how much confidence somebody has or if they're an introvert or an extrovert, there's a power differential that exists between a person seeking medical advice and guidance and help and assessment and care and the person who's providing it. So sometimes, as Lorraine said, if it was five or ten years ago, she might not have spoken up. And what happens is if somebody goes in to see a clinician for any reason and they say something like, don't come back until you lose 10 pounds, the way that somebody will deal with that is just not to go back. So if somebody says, you know, you could be doing better, sometimes people freeze. They're not as eloquent or able to um, say what Lorraine said in an educational moment, and they don't come back, and they may not seek a different podiatrist or additional medical care. So that really concerns me, and it shows why language is so important and that we need to, as healthcare professionals, um, keep a person as the center of the care. While we want to use a collaborative approach, it is all about person-centered care. Think about a person in the middle of a circle, and everything else that we're discussing floats around them. They are the hub of the wheel. They are the person that is that all of the goals and all of the um, individualized treatment plans should be built around. And that was not the case with Lorraine's medical visit. Do you think that healthcare providers, and I'm including pharmacists in this conversation as well as, nerve, as nurses um, across the board are even aware that they're using that power dynamic and that language in that way? Because it seems to me it's so ingrained in medical terminology and how people have always kind of, again, come to that fear tactic and the shoulda, coulda, woulda kind of approach to helping someone specifically with diabetes. That I, do you find that they're aware of it when you give your lectures and talk about these things? And I have to answer it like this. Many years ago when I was in school, um, we were taught, and I think to a certain extent we are educated this way, to fix a problem, and there is more and more limitations on time. So one of the reasons that I became a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified diabetes care and education specialist is because I wanted to help people. That's why I went into this profession, to help people. So when I have education and knowledge, I want to impart it. 
And what is challenging for some people is that you want to impart and fix and change things all at once. And obviously that doesn't work. When you overwhelm somebody with advice, when you lecture at them, when you shake your finger at somebody and say you should be doing this, you could be doing better, as the podiatrist said to Lorraine, you must be doing that. That should, that finger wagging and should never works and sets people back. And when I give um, talks and lectures and presentations and I shake my finger, especially when I speak to a physician audience, I say, stop shooting all over people. And they, they get taken back. I said, I didn't curse. I said, stop shooting all over people and start listening. The good news in a lot of this is in, um, let's take ADCES, the organization, the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, language guidance must be used in all presentations. If you give a proposal, for example, for the annual meeting, which will be coming up in August in Baltimore, just as I'm giving that as an example, in the guidance for preparing your presentation, it says this, these are the language guidance and the language guide, guidelines that must be used. So, yes, I think the last place where we're seeing, as you pointed out, some of the um, language not being used is in academic literature. It is very challenging to change that across the board. But I do absolutely. And on the street. And on the street. On the street, Susan, because it's not just my doctor, it's my mother, it's my wife, husband, whoever, it's my coworker who's like, you shouldn't be eating that, but it is Brenda's birthday, so have a piece of cake. You know what I mean? And I I just want to ask you, um, before you talk about what's going on on the street, to me, when this topic came up around language, it sounded so esoteric. And so when I'm trying to figure, you know, wrapping my brain around it for the last month, it seems to me that the power of this kind of shoulda, woulda, coulda is that when you approach someone with diabetes as it's your fault or you turn them into a victim, they, you're not helping them try to improve anything. In fact, you're putting like more rocks in the road to get to a healthy outcome. That's how, I, that's how I see it. Am I completely off the mark with that? Because that's how I see how it's so detrimental. It's like telling me I'm already, quote, unquote, bad. I've done this to myself. If I don't do anything now, it's going to get so much worse. It's like, how can I fight that? You just gave me 50 more pounds of weight to carry just trying to get back to a place where you told me I should be. That's right, and that's, again, that's exactly right. It's the community at large, as you said, the brothers, mothers, sisters, coworkers. So those two words, should, you should be doing this, or just, just, is, just change this, just do this, just exercise more, just go to the gym. Those two words are detrimental. But I think, Max, the major issue there that you're talking about is not listening. It's not listening. When we ask, open-ended questions, when we use um, motivational interviewing techniques, and we have to learn those, learning to actively listen, and to also the way that we do share our questions. It's not the language only. It's also our body language. And as COVID-19 was over the last few years, even my practice 
which used to be in person for almost 30 years, switched to telehealth, learning to navigate those systems or a hybrid model of that and communicate in that way, it's very important to embrace that people may freeze up and may not, we may not ask the questions correctly and listen for the responses because we're also embracing technology. So I want to bring that in as well. But I think the major problem in what you said is we need to listen and we need to ask. I think the greatest thing that anyone could ask someone with diabetes is, please tell me about your diabetes journey and then sit back. No one asks people whether they're newly diagnosed or been diagnosed for a while, tell me about you and tell me about your journey with diabetes. That's all. And open up the conversation that way. I think that that's a great way to start a conversation and to hear where somebody is. I love it. All right. Well, we're going to take a brief break, but when we come back, Susan and Lorraine are going to be on together and we're going to open up the conversation around weight bias, which is defined as negative weight related attitudes, beliefs, and assumptions and judgments towards individuals who are overweight or considered obese. So we'll find out how weight bias could be impacting someone's diabetes self-care. And while we're listening to some more great music from Prince, maybe you want to question yourself and call in at 347-215-8551. Here's Sweet Baby off Prince and the New Generation's Love Symbol album, courtesy of Sony Music. All right, welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick. You know, most people, including myself, have experienced a lifetime of really complicated messaging about food and body image, and certainly adding diabetes to that makes it even more complicated since for many of us we are obsessed about how many calories we're eating, how much carbohydrates we're consuming, do we have the bolus, how do we correct that, or that's probably not the right word, which Susan will tell me, and how do we live in harmony with all these things uh, going on in the world when we're dealing with a society that's very weight biased, there's weight stigma, there's a diet culture around us. So welcome back to the show, Susie Weiner and Lorraine Brooks. Lorraine, I want to start with you because you did mention this in the first part of the show, just how weight bias has played a role in your diabetes. Well, your diabetes first journey. of all, thank, thank you, Susan. And Susan, if you're going to be in Baltimore for your convention in August, you should call me and we should have dinner because I'm 10 minutes from downtown Baltimore. Um, Yay. So I want to say that. Yay. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that for me personally, I, I have struggled all my life really with my weight. And it has become so much a part of me from, you know, when I was uh, as far back as I can remember, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, that I was already being told that there was something wrong with me because, you know, I was a little bit heavier than the other kids in class and, 
you know, boys don't like you when you have extra weight and, and that whole thing. And so I grew up with that message. I became diabetic or found out that I was diabetic in my 20s. <clears throat> and um, I, I, I'm a type 1, which, as you guys both know, means that uh, my pancreas doesn't function at all. And it's not a question, it's not related to my weight in any way, but because I already struggled with a weight issue, now having diabetes, people automatically assume that I have the type of diabetes that, um, you know, can be managed or or should be managed with weight loss or weight control. And so this is something that I've been fighting literally my whole life. And... um, (laughs) You know, I have to honestly say, it, it, it for me personally, it hasn't really gotten any better. The struggle hasn't gotten easier. What I do now is I will at least speak up for myself, but I don't think that really has made me feel better about the fact that it's still a struggle. I still and feel Susan, like it's a struggle, you know, even though I'm speaking no, up it, about it. And there's been a lot of research, Susan, that from the 2000s, tabloids, magazines, and media have really accelerated this kind of weight biasness through pictures of celebrities and, you know, you know, tracking celebrities' loss or gaining, kind of supporting the idea of using yo-yo dieting as some kind of like um, clickbait to get people into a story to find out how much how how their favorite celebrity isn't doing well. I mean, Valerie Bertinelli had a very public um, confession on her thing when a um, uh, when one of the fans posted, like, looks like you've gained a lot of weight. So as a registered dietitian, how do you unpack this when you're, when you're talking to someone with diabetes? Because food seems to be the first thing anyone talks about when you're diagnosed. It's an absolute um, challenge for sure. And I think it's, again, even become worse because of uh, social media and with younger people with social media and the unattainable somebody jumping in the air and still being able to eat a muffin, but yet they're um, showing a picture of them looking a certain unattainable weight, which is probably not what they really look like, but a filtered picture, which goes back to the idea of that Lorraine talked about earlier, perfectionism or control. So there is so one of the reasons why we even look at I'll just get off the topic a little bit um, even hemoglobin A1C or three month blood sugar average is going to be shied away from a little bit we're going to look more at time and range so that we can really see more data of what's going on with people similar to looking at um, weight issues so I see a lot of issues with this in my years of doing this and with working with people. Um, and it leads to, I won't say um, eating disorders, but dysfunctional eating and disordered eating. And part of the reason I'm seeing that, and it's probably very underestimated how many people with diabetes have that, because if you're not slotted into a diagnosed category of having diabulimia or anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorder, there are so many other factors around with that that are associated with yo-yo dieting. I would also say that after years of having diabetes and type 1 diabetes where we're seeing uh, weight management issues with a lot of people, 
is the fact of developing insulin resistance over time. So being judged or shamed or blamed um, many times by people in our lives or clinicians is kind of ignorant. Um, and again, we should listen to the person and what they're going through to help them address those specific issues. And a lot of the reason that these disorders in eating do complicate matters is because as people, every person with diabetes will attest, one of the first things that we're hammering into is food. This is what you should eat. This is what other people eat. This is what my aunt Betty eats. So how come you're eating that? And it does bleed into someone's life to have to think about that all the time. Lorraine, how do you feel about that? Do you connect with that 24-7 kind of food conversation in your head or like she said, this is what you should be eating? Uh, 100%. 100%. I, I, um, I have been in that position many times, and you mentioned something, Max, before, a scenario about how, you know, your friends may say you shouldn't eat this or why are you eating that, but, but it's Mary's birthday, so you should have some cake. And so there's a lot of mixed messages. There's a lot of um, uh, ignorance, I guess is the word, around the whole situation. I have been out for dinner with friends on my birthday, and I have not had a piece of my own birthday cake several times. And my friends will say to me, well, it's your birthday. You know, forget the diabetes today. It's your birthday. And my answer to that is, my body doesn't know, my pancreas doesn't know that today's my birthday, so it's going to do the same thing that it does any other day. So I'm not going to have that cake today. You know, if I want it tomorrow, I'll have it tomorrow. And I don't think that people really understand that or appreciate that, and they think it's kind of, I guess, it, you know, it goes counter to everything that they think they know. Um, but, you know, it's a constant um you constantly have to educate people and you constantly have to correct people and you constantly have to fight your own feelings and fight your own guilt and fight your own shame and fight your own embarrassment or whatever it is you're feeling in addition to having to kind of educate everybody. And it's, it's, it's exhausting, quite frankly. Mm. And I have to say like uh, Susan, what's also about this too is, how it um, affects your own choices. So, you know, what, like you were saying, like what we see in social media about, you know, fruit smoothies and granola and yogurt or white rice and this is bad or this isn't good, you know, it totally could have a very direct impact on what you're choosing to eat, right, and why you think something is good or bad or why, oh, you know, like Lorraine said, I can't, it's your birthday you could have it. So how does someone make sense of that? Yeah, and I think what Lorraine was describing, as many people describe, is a complex internal monologue that is calculating throughout your head while somebody who may have good intentions, by the way, um, is saying that you should, why don't you have a piece of your own birthday cake? But in your internal monologue, you're thinking, well, let me try to calculate this. And a very small piece of this cake, maybe 45 grams of carbohydrate, but how much insulin do I have on board? And do I need to bolus? And does that mean this? And how will that interact with that? So this very exhausting internal monologue is going on in your head, and people will go in a number of different directions. Well, you know what? I just won't have it. 
or I'll have it and then I won't be in the moment and enjoy it, which is what might be great for some people, or I'm not going to have it, I'm going to feel deprived, and I may go home and binge eat. There were just so many scenarios that go through your head when this is going on. Um, it's, it's very, Lorraine used the right word, it can be very exhausting. And again, as a, as a clinician asking someone, tell me, tell me about you. Tell me about recent events. How do you feel when you go out to eat? If those discussions can be open-ended, I think it can help come up with some potential strategies so that you don't have to endure that the next time you go out to dinner. And Lorraine, I know you have to go shortly. I wanted to ask you one more thing about these conflicting messages. I found this quote, my therapist tells me not to talk about my weight and that my body is fine, but my doctor keeps weighing me and says that I need to lose weight. Um, I'm just curious, like, how do you make sense of that? And, and what would you tell someone uh, uh, who, who wrote that? Do you think that uh, that's helping or hindering having these conflicting opinions? Do you think that therapy in any way can help someone go to the podiatrist like you did and say, stop, that's not the conversation we should be having right now? Like what advice would you give to someone else who's in your shoes? Well, interesting you should say all of that because I have just the opposite scenario in my life. Dr. Bev is my therapist, and my doctor, my endocrinologist, told me just the opposite of exactly what you're saying. It was my endocrinologist who told me weight, uh, weight loss is not going to be a part of your treatment plan. We're going to take care of your heart. We're going to watch your blood pressure and all that other good stuff, but forget about the weight. Matter of fact, at the time, they don't even weigh me because it's not that important. And Dr. Bev tells me just exactly the opposite of what you just said, too which is, you know, um, you are more than a, some, you, you are more than whatever the number on the scale says. So I have exactly the opposite of those two things going on in my life, and I'm very grateful for, for both of those people because um, I think that everything that they're saying to me is true. Now, those are two unusual people. Dr. Bev is unusual, and my, my endocrinologist is unusual uh, in that sense. I know that many, most people don't have that experience, um, so, yeah, it, you know, anything that people say to you can have, I guess, any kind of impact depending on how you view yourself. And it was almost a relief to me when my endocrinologist said, don't worry about your weight, forget it. I felt good on one level because I thought to myself, oh, my God, finally somebody gets it. But on the other hand, I thought like, well, gee, now I really, gee, that means that, <laughs> that means that this is it for the rest of my life. This is how it's going to be, you know. But so it was both empowering and, you know, kind of resigning myself to it in the moment. But it was a really good thing for her to say to me. Um, so, you know, I guess, you know, all together, all, all put together, I think you have to weigh everything, no pun intended, you have to weigh everything everybody says to you, and then you have to weigh your response. And I think you have to develop, and it took me a while to develop, the courage to be able to say things to people um, in in as kind a way and, and as matter-of-fact a way as I can um, in, in an effort to help educate them. So maybe the next person who walks into their office they'll think twice before they say something to them that I've already expressed 
you know, was a problem for me. Um, there's a lot of different layers, and and um, it, it's a it's a daily it's a daily. Uh, I, I don't want to say challenge. struggle. It's a daily scenario that you have to deal with. Agreed. Well, thanks for joining us, and um, wish you the best of luck with the vagina monologues. And when we come back, Susan Weiner and I are going to unpack what mobile apps and diet apps and everything else are saying to us in this kind of power of to harm or help us with language regarding our diabetes health. First, we're going to hear another song from Prince called The Morning Papers, courtesy of Sony Music. He realized that she was new to love, naive in every way. Every schoolboy's fantasy she was, that's why he had to wait. If they pour his heart into a glass and offered it like wine, she could drink and be back in time with the morning paper. All right, we're final moments with uh, Susan Weiner talking about how some of these mobile apps could be. triggering things in us. Susan, you and I were talking offline before the podcast tonight a little bit how some diet apps might be triggering uh, more harm, harm than help when it comes to trying to reach our healthcare goals. Explain that to me. Sure. So we are really technology bound. I know that I don't go too many places without my smartphone. It's with me at all times and people with diabetes are often um, using really great and advanced devices to help, Um, but sometimes too much information being spit back at you all day long can be very judgmental. So while it can be helpful to look at what you're doing, for sure, it's a great tool in your toolbox, and maybe look at patterns and help um, sometimes with being in the moment of what you're eating and and being mindful of what you're eating. Too much information when an app will give you back and an app give you back information that you're not really looking for, saying, Oh my goodness, you went over on this many calories for lunch, like this that can make you feel really bad about things and throw your hands up. So that is can be very problematic. Um, if you're using it as a guide or a reminder and not as a judgment for some people, it can be kind of helpful. And as antiquated as this may sound, I do ask people at times to take a break from app technology in terms of food tracking apps and to sometimes go back to journaling, just pen to paper to kind of connect with themselves again and it helps to take a break sometimes especially if you're on many many other diabetes devices that can be overwhelming yeah it seems like it would be overwhelming especially if it's coming to you every day and again like there's already a little bit of uh, obsession around food to begin with when you're diagnosed with diabetes and just the idea of counting anything when most people prior to a diagnosis and specifically, well, I guess it would be with type one or type two. I'm thinking it's more with type two, but the idea that they never really paid attention to when they eat or what they ate prior to that diagnosis. But once they get the diagnosis, things really change. And that brings up the other question I have for you because 
Um, a lot of registered dietitians today, probably most of them, really tell you that nothing is ever off limits, that you could enjoy the foods you, lo- you should allow yourself to enjoy food and you should enjoy it in moderation. And it seems to me a lot of the pushback from the patient is, no, I, I do want a list of what I can and can't have. I do want you to, like, really spell it out to me very clearly, and that doesn't seem like it has. Um, I'd be curious to know what you think the results are of that, too. It just seems like it's more confusing. It can be more confusing, and I think some of them comes with experience. So sometimes a person will reach out to me and say, I only want to come and, and have a session with you, a sessions with you, if I could have a meal plan and tell me what and what not to eat. And I think that part of that is if someone is newly diagnosed or if you have experienced diabetes burnout and then you're coming back um, to approach your, your health care journey um, once again or a little differently, you may feel bad and want to take a more hardline approach to get things done more quickly. So while I give collaborative guidance, um, I don't give overly structured meal plan. We talk together about what a person likes to eat, of course, of course, culture and food preferences, and perhaps other comorbid conditions that may require some tweaking in the food. But when somebody is collaborative, rather than getting a very specific meal plan or list, they are much more likely to have buy-in, much more likely to be happier with the program and have some more buy-in. So um, then we look at data of how their, how their blood sugars may be reacting or some other objective type of measurements that might work for them. And then somebody may have, like I said, more buy-in and, and be more willing to make some positive changes that lead to better health outcomes. It takes a little bit of time. And interwoven in that would be positivity and mindfulness and really what that means. But it's, it's an entire process. It's not black and white. And um, I will say one thing also, Max, many dietitians are also embarking on um, promoting some types of I, I would say restrictive eating plans, that's their judgment. It's, it's not the way that my practice operates, but some people may support things that are um, not in moderation, but perhaps more limited in certain areas because they feel that that may work with the population they're working with. So depends on no, who the I, clinician I think is. Right, and I know we spent a lot more time talking about the weight bias tonight, but that goes to my personal story with my former boss, Luther Vandross, who had type 2 diabetes. I mean, I, you know, in hearing you speak about it tonight and Lorraine, you know, for years people may be yo-yo dieters, which means they've been successful at losing weight, but they haven't been able to maintain the weight. And so I think sometimes when you're diagnosed with diabetes, people forget someone's history. And it seems like we're just putting one more steeplechase in front of them in order to reach a goal that they couldn't reach before that. You know what I mean? Because if people could have lost and kept the weight off they lost for their family reunion or their wedding or whatever that, you know, how people do that, they they would be in a different place. And so here they are coming into you knowing they've gained weight. And see, with like my boss, 
I feel like when he had his stroke, again, I wasn't in his body. I'm just giving you my perspective. But my thing was, like, when he had his stroke, he was at one of his highest weights after gaining and losing 100 pounds about 10 times. And at that point, he felt probably so defeated. No one wants to go to the doc, go back to the doctor at that point when you've gained 100 pounds. I mean, everyone runs to the doctor when you've lost 100 pounds. And so this is where I feel the language is so powerful. Like, how do you talk to someone who has tried and hasn't succeeded? I don't even want to use the word failure. I just want to use the word like they're trying, but they haven't been able to succeed in whatever that mutual goal is you set up. I'd love to give you the final words on that. So my final word would be I take a different approach and a a different way to define goals. The first thing I do when I'm scheduling an appointment with a new person is I say, they, they will say to me exactly what you're saying. I was so successful on this plan. I lost 60 pounds. And then I give that like a pause of five seconds and I say, have you kept off the 60 pounds? Just as an example. And they'll say no in a defeatist type of way. So we redefine what a healthy goal might be. And that might be for someone who hasn't walked in a long time walking half two houses down to the next apartment building, that may be defining preparing lunches for two days. There would be a smaller step realistic goal that they had buy into. But success is not measured with these overly lofty goals that can't be achieved and then you feel like failure and you are absolutely right, then you will not go back and continue with any type of positive Um, type of session or program or support. And my last word is that peer support, like you do on your show and offering support for other people who have a similar lived experience, can be everything when trying to um, have a healthier outlook. Peer support is so important. But that's a slippery slope, too, because from my side of the table, you're taught to get your to ch- if you're chasing numbers, which means eyeballs and followers and likes or whatever you want to consider that to be. Uh, you should you should start pointing a finger and telling people exactly what to do, and I should twist my body and look 15 pounds lighter as I'm you know like you said earlier jumping up in the air and eating my muffin. And so it, it just gets ridiculous about how the messaging on both sides of the table could lead to. Again, the chaos and the confusion, and and going back to what you said earlier about the power dynamic, you know, and and the diabetes journey, patients or people living with diabetes have to be comfortable enough when they're discussing the journey to tell you how they went down into the valley, (laughs) right? I mean, they can't, you know, like you say, tell me your diabetes journey. I don't know how many people feel vulnerable about talking about some of the issues or challenges they've dealt with in trying to get to your office and what was in their past. You know, how many times they have lost weight and, and somehow it's crept back on and things like that. I think that's also part of the language, too, from the other side of the table. We need to be more open and allow ourselves to be vulnerable in talking about the full journey, not just the highlights as we see them. Absolutely. That's, I, I, would, I would agree with all of that, and maybe it just starts with, seeing that somebody cares enough to ask. I love that. All right. So, Susan, we don't have the last word. Maybe we should just go to symbols, um, Susan, like Prince did. 
because <laughs> that's, okay. that's yeah, our I musical agree. inspiration. And mm-hmm. Yeah, Prince inspired this whole conversation tonight. I, I love him even more for doing that, as well as the new power generation. All right, I want to thank Susan and Lorraine for uh, joining me tonight on this podcast. We'll definitely be sharing Lorraine's poem on our Divabetic blog in the coming days. And uh, make sure to check out our Facebook pages and Divabetic YouTube page channels. We just reposted, Susan Wiener, because you've been on our mystery podcast before. We just reposted last year's mystery podcast, A Christmas Peril, on YouTube in 10-minute segments so people could have fun listening to that podcast at um, their convenience or you can listen to the entire podcast on Blog Talk Radio. So we're going to end the show tonight with uh, an underrated composition by uh, Prince, but one that I feel is so important to Diva Bedek. It's And God Created Woman. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks for joining Love